Hi, this is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. My guest this week in the studio, Douglas Wissing, a Bloomingtonian. He is an author, a journalist, our very own war correspondent. Doug, thanks for being on Big Talk. Always great to be here, Mike. Doug, right now, is working on a brand new book, but first, let's talk about a little bit of your background. Uh, as I mentioned, author, journalist, and war correspondent, you've written, I find, eight books. How many books have you written? Well, I'm, uh, I think I'm now working on my tenth one. Pioneer in Tibet, Funding the Enemy, Hopeless but Optimistic. Here's one called In Writing, Uncovering the Unexpected Hoosier State. There is a book on Crown Hill, a cemetery. Big cemetery up in Indianapolis, famous cemetery. And then this one I like, Indiana, one pint at a time, having to do with brewing. The history of Indiana brewing, which is quite an extraordinary history. And uh, I do have to say research on that was a lot easier than researching the war in Afghanistan. I would think. The war in Afghanistan, it is, as you told us on a previous appearance on Big Talk about a year ago, the longest war in American history. Let me uh, give a quote of yours regarding the Afghanistan war. We've been doing this for more than 15 years now. The total bill just for Afghanistan is now over a trillion dollars. That's a lot of zeros. A lot of zeros. We're, we're spending somewhere north, way north of $50 billion just this year, which is, just to give you a, a reference point, more than our entire infrastructure budget. That is just, you know, these are all big numbers. So $50 billion, just to give you another reference point, the appropriations for the war against ISIS in Syria was only $5 billion. So it's a gargantuan amount of money that's being poured into the sand pit, as the soldiers like to say. And um, as soldiers have said, the juice ain't worth the squeeze. We have, <laughs> have destroyed millions of lives. We have spent well over a trillion dollars, and we have failed miserably at that war. It's, it is an unwinnable war. It is a lost war. Now, you've been there a number of times, and at least three times you've been embedded with American military forces. At certain points, you followed some agribusiness development teams. These were all different uh, units of National Guards. Mm -hmm. They were they were out in in the insurgency-controlled areas with the thought that they were going to win hearts and minds. And yeah. the great advantage of these teams, they were small elite teams that had their own security. They were doing development work, but they could they could break the wire, as soldiers say. They could leave the bases. 90% of the American soldiers never leave their bases. They're in these little uh, fortified Fort Apaches. And these teams could go out into the Pashtun villages and, and um, into most often Taliban-controlled areas. And so they and were— And you would go out. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I had my own, you know— You 50, wore a helmet. 50 pounds of body armor. And, yeah. You know, yeah. yeah it's, uh, that's what you have to do. Um, You'd have to travel in convoys of, of armored vehicles with machine gunners on top and go out and say, hey, would you like some nice new wheat seed? <laughs> and, of course, it didn't work, as it hasn't worked. Winning hearts and minds, wham work, they call it. The military loves acronyms, and, and wham work doesn't, didn't work there any more than it did in Vietnam. It, didn't they meet uh, under uh, traditional 
conference trees. Shura trees, meeting trees. Shura is meeting. So at the edge of virtually every um, village is a shade tree, and that's where the meetings take place. So you would meet under Shura trees. Do you think that these people were shocked by the appearance of these high-tech warriors? You know, the Afghans are a warrior culture. It's a thousand-year-old culture, and, and honor and courage and, and revenge are essential cornerstones of that particular culture. So they were nonplussed by the appearance of stormtroopers dressed in 50 pounds of, of armor and enough armaments to take out a shopping center. Right. They would just come down and sit and talk to you. And, of course, we came bearing money, so <laughs> the Afghans are not stupid. They, yeah. there, there's an old joke. You know, the British have tried to subdue Afghanistan for decades and decades and decades. I mean, it, everybody has. Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, the Persians, the Russians, the British. The British had three wars with the Afghans and never won. Well, wow. and and the Afghan, and then they figured out the thing to do was just to kind of buy them off, because it was far cheaper. And there's a great line that the British always say is that you can't buy an Afghan, but you can rent him. <laughs> well, you stuck your nose into this Byzantine area of the world where there's a war that's going on that who knows who's winning or losing. What a huge Herculean task that must have been. And now you have decided to go into another Herculean task, and that is a CIA story. Specifically, though, there's a gentleman by the name of Benjamin C. Evans, Jr. Frankly, Doug, I've never heard of this guy. Well, he is the most powerful guy you've never heard of. Yeah. Benjamin C. Evans was a Hoosier. Uh, that went to Culver Military Academy, came from an old Hoosier family, uh, went off to West Point, was in the military for some years, and then joined the CIA. He was in intelligence in the military, joined the CIA. And what was undercover was a covert operative for some years, served in Cuba just before the Bay of Pigs, was, I believe, the last CIA agent out of Cuba um, before the Bay of Pigs, closed the embassy there. Um, and eventually became the executive secretary of the CIA, which is the highest ranking, among the highest ranking positions in the CIA below the political appointees. So below the director, below the people that we see as kind of the face of the CIA. He is one of those Washington bureaucrats who actually runs these organizations. And they're there throughout various presidential administrations, they're in the building forever. Yeah, he served under six different directors of the CIA, and, and the, the range of personalities among those six directors makes your head spin. That anyone could do that and stay in his position is a testimony to the kind of person he was. Served under four different presidents. Yeah. Um, but again, he was the most powerful guy you've never heard of yeah. because he was behind the scenes. He was in the room, as they say on virtually every CIA decision. He was in the executive uh, meetings each morning. He kept the minutes, which is a very powerful thing to do. He was sure. the traffic manager. He made things run. So he assigned the tasks. He followed up with them. He made sure things ran well. You're talking about more than just drawing up the schedule and things in that order. You're talking about actually directing 
the work of the agency. What was decided in the executive meeting, yes. Yeah, yeah. What is the CIA? Central Intelligence Agency. It morphs through time. I have uh, found that FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, was very impressed with the British spy agency during World War II. So he started the Office of Strategic Services. Then the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, was closed down like within a month after the end of World War II. But then Truman started up a new federal spy agency. And it has, the CIA has come from that. Yeah, there, there's a, some themes that run through the book. So this is a biography of Benjamin C. Evans, yeah. his life and his times. He, he lived through some amazing times. He was a general manager of the CIA from 1966 to 1981. So a lot went on then. You bet. Um, it's the, some of the other themes have to do with what is the culture of the CIA? What is a CIA family? So his widow is still alive. She's 85, an incredibly brilliant woman who is still amazingly active, comes from old Washington aristocracy. So one of the themes is how social position influences your political career, your your career in the intelligence. So the OSS, as you mentioned, the, the joke always was is the OSS stood for oh so social <laughs> because everybody was from the Ivy League. <laughs> and and the same kinds of patterns happen in the CIA where it, it, I I have a weekly kind of a standing interview appointment with the widow who's in D.C. And she she is in a uh, retirement home that we should all hope to be in. Yeah. It is like the world's best retirement home. It's where do admirals, where do ambassadors, where do very uh, powerful people go to retire? That place. So I met Robert E. Lee the fourth in the retirement center. You you know the woman wow. is named is Jan Evans, uh, Jan King Evans. And uh, so she'll, if I'm there, she'll introduce me to just person after person who's coming down the hall in a walker or, you know, with his wife pushing him in a wheelchair. Well, that's ambassador, and she'll introduce me to these people. So, <laughs> uh, But she, she has all of these incredible um, insights into the way that Washington works. But it's sort of like asking a fish about water. This has been her whole life. <laughs> so I, I have learned that I'll say, well, do you know this person? And I'll name an incredibly powerful person. Oh, yes. Well, I went to school with her, his wife and their daughters went, you know, they went to cathedral or they went, her son went to St. Albans, all these very upper crust schools where uh, the, the kind of the, the top echelon of Washington goes. That Here's a, here's a, a thing that I didn't know is old Washingtonians are called cave dwellers. Why? No, I'm not quite sure why. It's been, but that's been the term going back to the 19th century. If you're old Washington society, you're a cave dweller. Huh. So there's certain clubs and certain things. And, and the way power moves, it often moves through those places, the Chevy Chase Club or the Sulgrave Club or, the, you know, and... And so I can, I have to kind of ask elliptical questions to then understand how that power courses. Yeah. Now, this Evans fella, he's part of a tradition of, as you say, upper crust people populating the CIA. 
Does that mean that perhaps he wasn't qualified to be doing what he was doing? Very well qualified uh-huh. person. I He went to West Point. He was an aide de camp to very important generals, which is a that's an incredibly important position. Yes. Um, no, he was a very well qualified guy, and and had incredible. I have yet to find anyone to say anything negative about Benjamin Evans, which I can tell you. I interview a lot of people about a lot of different things. I don't get this. He was he was an Eagle Scout. He was a straight <laughs> arrow. He really was, and that's. How do we get to that place? Well, that's part of my inquiry is yeah. to understand his path through life to become that person. So are you saying he never made enemies? I've yet to find anybody. He got along with everyone. Now, just for perspective here, George Herbert Walker Bush, what was his position with the CIA? He was the director. He was the director. Now, again, that would be the guy whose face is everywhere, his picture would be in the offices. But again, it's guys like Benjamin C. Evans who are doing the work. Yeah. Why did you get interested in this fellow? Well, he was a Hoosier. There's one thing. And he, these people that run the organizations fascinate me. There was a a, a gentleman named uh, Kennedy, an ambassador at the State Department who resigned right after Trump took office in uh-huh. protest. And that guy was, again, the most powerful diplomat you'd never heard of. He was the highest ranking person just below the political appointees, just below the secretary of state, the, you know, the other people that are brought in by each president. So the analog to Evans in the State that's Department. That's right. That's right. And he was the guy that was feared. But, you know, Evans served that same kind of function. It puzzles me, as you say, he didn't make any enemies, uh, yet he's the kind of guy who probably had to bring the hammer down on a lot of people at a lot of different times. I think he had a whole different style than Kennedy did. How far are you along in this book, and how far do you have to go? Uh, Well, I go until he dies in 1986, Mm -hmm. Um, and it's... uh, you 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 make advances on parallel paths, as they say. You know, it's like I've been doing a lot of background reading, a lot of interviews with elderly CIA people, uh, the widows of elderly CIA people. Another theme that is running through the book has to do with the culture of CIA families. Well, how does that work when, first of all, dad has to lie to you for the first 12 or 15 years of your life about what he really does. And you think dad's kind of this minor State Department figure where he's not progressing at all and you're going to school and you're, all your classmates, their dads are moving right on up, their moms and dads, and your dad's kind of static in his position. And then you finally get to be 14 or so and dad has to have the sit-down talk. I, I think of it as kind of like the birds and the bees talk for guys in trench coats and say, well, actually, I'm in the CIA. And you know, I've talked to some kids where they go, I was so relieved. I thought my father was an idiot. <laughs> you know, now I understand. Are you saying that a fellow like Evans would be cagey about what his job was to his neighbors? Exactly. And and so I've, I've gone into this a lot. Like, how does this work? And because, you know, like most people, we come home at the end of the day. Yeah. Hey, how to go, honey? And you yeah. kind of... Um, My boss is a jerk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so 
I've yet to find anybody that Ben Evans said a squeak about his work, just did not do it. And, and so I keep going, you know, I, I keep asking this question in a hundred different ways, trying to understand it. Yeah. And, find, and, and one of his daughters said, well, you have to understand, I went to cathedral school. Four of my classmates were presidential candidates. And she named them. And she said, nobody ever talked about anything. Uh-huh. And, and another woman, she was, I believe, the wife of a government official. And she said, well, you, you knew in Washington, you know who's in the CIA and who's not, and you have enough sense to not ask them. And, and Ben Evans' line always was, well, you ask them about themselves. People always like to talk about themselves. Yeah, yeah. And he was just a very suave guy. He could work his way around it. Are you frustrated by the lack of forthcomingness I've been investigating the war in Afghanistan. Well, there's another thing, yeah. You know, but there's a no. lot of people who want to talk secrets about Afghanistan. Well, you have the same challenges, you know, yeah. and you and and I have to tell people, look, I'm not interested in classified information. Right. That's not what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in the culture. I'm interested in the person. I'm interested in examples that you can illustrate uh, to tell me about that world. How does that work? Because it's, it's different from most of our worlds, right? Yeah, yeah. Why would someone want to get involved with the CIA? Because you can't go around and say, hey, I'm a big shot in the CIA. You can't brag. He, he went to Culver. He went to West Point. Yeah. It's duty, honor, country. He was, you know, in that old-fashioned term, a patriot. He served in occupied Japan just right after the war. He yeah. served during the Korean War. And the story that is told to me is he joined the CIA so there wouldn't be war anymore. You know, we were in the Cold War, and he had seen what a hot war was like. He was in Japan in 46, you know, where there's still, you know, millions of people stumbling around suffering from the fire yeah. bombings from Nagasaki, from Hiroshima. Is that naive? Sure. And I'm sure he would admit that now also. Apparently, he didn't leave any journals or diaries, I would think. No, no. You know, we, there, there are things. Luckily, the widow has kept a, a wonderful archive of things. There, are, uh, there is material at West Point. There's material. He went to Columbia uh, to get a degree in international relations. He's got, uh, you know, there's military records. There's, you, you build a picture out of, you know, it's, it's like a... A pointless thing. You build it out of yeah. a million little details. When you first approached Jan, the widow, how did you have to go about selling yourself to her? Well, as I mentioned, she is old Washington aristocracy yeah. and um, is used to being a very powerful person who has had an extraordinary life. You know, she name drops at an intergalactic level. And she isn't making it up. You know, like, what do they say? It, 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 it ain't bragging if it's the truth. <laughs> and, and that's Jan is a great storyteller. And, uh, but the thing was, people said she's used to dominating a conversation and goes off on all these tangents. Yeah. And I, I think the first thing I had to try to figure out was, could I keep her on task? Because otherwise... If she went all over the place, I wouldn't be able to keep track. It's right. like 
drinking from a fire hose. You have to kind of stay in some sort of chronological order to begin to make sense of all the information that's flooding in. As a biographer, that's just the way it is. Right. And so at our first meeting, I kept asking, were there any family papers, archives, photographs, anything? Couldn't get a straight answer. And I met with Jan, who is is really quite an extraordinary woman. We've become friends. I, I really appreciate this woman. And uh, she was telling me all this stuff. And I said, well, this is what we're going to be trying to do. I'm going to be asking you questions in a rough chronology so I can begin to make sense out of it. And the people that knew her said, nobody has ever, she, you can't do that. It won't work with Jan. And and there was a couple of times where I was saying, well, Jan, that is an incredible story. Can we hold that? Can I jot this down? <laughs> can we go back to this Thing. And she and she would she wants the story told. She, yeah, you know, yeah. And so she would go back. And by the end of the first couple of hours, you know, I said, well, you know, I think what I can do is if they're family papers, we'll take a break. So you, and she could have gone. She's got more vitality than I do. Quite honestly, <laughs> she's in her eighties, mid eighties. Um, because I needed to find out are there access to family papers? Because if I don't have documents, it's just stories, and I can't do a book. I have to have documentation. Right, right. And she said, well, yes, there are. And she went up to her suite and she came down with an, a shopping cart of the most amazing things. And the first thing she does, she hands me a, uh, and I had said, anything you don't want me to see, you can, you know, redact it, put something over it, make a photocopy. I don't need to see personal stuff. She hands me a letter and I open it up and it's a love letter from her husband to her. And I said, oh, Jen, this is a love letter. You might want to. She said, you take it here. Just take all that stuff. <laughs> and since then, she's just given me complete access to, to the whole, everything she has. Evans, was he the kind of guy that you would have ever seen his name in the paper? Never. He, went, he, he attended uh, one year at Wabash College and uh, before going off to West Point. And at one point, Wabash College contacted him in the 70s, I believe, asking him well, they would like to do a little story for the alumni magazine on this man that has clearly risen so high yeah. on the ranks of the CIA. And he wrote back a very polite, no thank you. Okay, let me ask you this. Who's the executive secretary of the CIA now? I have no idea. Is it, can it be found out? Probably, though I don't know how one would go about it, because also the position uh, has shifted around quite a bit. Ben Evans, essentially, because he was so effective at what he did, was doing the work of two or three people by the end because he yeah. he knew the job and he right. could do it. Uh, and so it's all been reorganized now. What were the big CIA-involved incidents during his term? Well, we were that was the Cold War. That was the war All in right. Vietnam. The CIA had an enormous role in, um, in the war in Vietnam. Yeah, Operation yeah. Phoenix, all that stuff. Um, you have all these front organizations that, that were a big thing. Of course, Indiana University had their own connection to the CIA. And what was that? Well, we we had people here that were directly connected to the CIA. Yeah. Our Eastern European Language Center. Yeah. Uh, was Herman Wells was smart enough to figure out 
that he could sell it to the legislature by saying, well, there are all these Eastern Europeans up in the region, up in the Calumet region, and they need to know about their history and their language. And, of course, there was also this thing with the Cold War happening. So Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, the Central Eurasian uh, program here. Yeah. Professor Norbu, uh, it's been very well documented, the, the Dalai Lama's uh, brother. Yeah was involved with the CIA, with the CIA secret army against the Chinese. That was the longest-running CIA field operation in history. And then, of course, you had all of the, the, the term was the family jewels, the great revelations in the mid-'70s about the CIA dirty tricks and the assassination attempts against Castro, the, yeah. the LSD experiments, you know, all that stuff, what was called the family jewels. Right. That all came out right in the middle of, of Evans' period of responsibility. So that was an incredibly chaotic time in the CIA. And at that point, there was some major changes in the CIA and reforms that came out of that. And uh, Benjamin Evans had to be in the middle of all of that. And, and is the CIA going to cough up a bunch of redacted documents? Maybe. <laughs> or maybe in a hundred years. Maybe in a hundred years. Yeah, <laughs> there have been FOIA requests, and we do have some things that are in uh, declassified state now. Some various things, but we're still waiting on that great trove of material. In doing your work on this particular book, have you or are you going to approach the CIA itself and say, "I need this information"? Well, we have made those requests, uh-huh. and they have acknowledged that they have received the request. Thanks very much, right? <laughs> yeah. And and you do what you can. And and luckily, there has been a lot of time that's elapsed. Yeah. And there still are. I've been interviewing people that are in their 80s that are still very with it, and they can talk about. Again, I'm not looking for classified information. Right. I'm not, I'm not really looking for dirty secrets. Yeah. I'm trying to understand the worldview. I'm trying to understand how it all works. And um, there, you know, these are people who have spent a lifetime lying and obfuscating and dodging. And I am not going to be the guy, even in their twilight years, yeah. who suddenly they're going to say, I really am glad you called today because I want to tell you everything. <laughs> But you are reading those love letters. I am reading those love letters. (laughs) Have you found anything unexpected in some of those personal documents? Well, there's there's family lore that I I believe is true, having to do with the moral quandaries that anyone in the covert service has to deal with and the, the mental stress it puts on people. And... It's, again, led me down that path of trying to understand how people operate in a situation where you're an honorable person. You wouldn't get into that position unless you were a very honorable person Mm -hmm. and then are required to do fairly dicey stuff. Doug Wissing, thanks for being on Big Talk. Thanks. It's always great to be here, Michael.